You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. My guest today is John Thomas, also known as JT. JT is someone I met totally by chance, sitting at a bar, having lunch at PodFest Expo in Orlando, Florida in March 2020. I didn't know that a casual conversation with a stranger would turn out quite the way that it did. I've only known JT a few months, but I can honestly say he is probably one of, if not the most positive and uplifting people that I've ever met, which is a little odd considering he's been living with cancer for six and a half years. JT was very candid in this long form interview about his experience being diagnosed with cancer, what his life was before that, what his life became after that. He talks about a lot of the things he's learned about himself, about life, about people, what he wants and what he doesn't want. There's something here for all of us. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. How you been? Okay. I was... You been good? Yeah, I was feeling very frazzled today just because of stupid shit. Like, I feel like I feel like I get up in the morning and I have all these plans for my day and then <laughs> none of that happens and... I'm, yeah. you know, reacting to things instead, and then I get all grumpy. And but yeah. then I came to the office to talk to you, and I'm just like, and then feeling guilty. Like, how is it? Ah, I don't feel guilty. You know, he's so positive all the time, and here I am, like, you know, irritated by really dumb shit. It's, it's really like. Well, it's funny. Um, it's funny you say that because um, I feel that same way. Like. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There are times where, like, I'll hear somebody say, um, oh, my gosh, it's so frustrating. I can't get my nails done or something. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. But, but I do it, too. I was, uh, I was at the cancer center last week, and uh, I was getting, getting ready to go in to so my chemotherapy currently now. I have a port which I don't know if you can see that for me to, but it's a, where the, it's an access line. And so they put the chemotherapy in and I take it home with me and it infuses over 24 hours. And so I've got this pump and I've got the infusion. So then I have to go back 24 hours later, they take it out and they give me a, uh, it's a shot that they stick to my arm that it shoots me like 27 hours later. And so I was on the Friday, Thursday, I get the chemo, come home for 24 hours. And then Friday, I go back and they have to take it out and put that shot or that on pro on. And I was sitting across, uh, sitting across, like I was in a couch and there was an older gentleman and his wife uh, next to me. And this man just looked angry, like angry and not feeling well. I, I don't misinterpret that, but I could tell that he was going through a rough moment. And I understand that because I've been there. Um, 
And I remember I wasn't feeling well, like I was not feeling well. This chemotherapy just knocks me back. And I was like, I felt sick. I felt like I just didn't feel great. And, and I was there by myself. Uh, I usually do treatment by myself is easier on me mentally. Um, Cause I'm one of those people who, when, if somebody tries to go with treatment, treatment with me or take me to doctor's appointments, I worry more about them than just getting through it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. But I remember looking at him not feeling well and realizing, although I didn't feel well, he was struggling more than I. And it was really kind of cool because I wear these three bracelets. I wear this bracelet on my wrist. It says, uh, I believe in miracles. And then the other side of it says it's not over. And I always wear three of them because usually somebody, if I'm sitting in treatment, somebody will ask me about the bracelet. And then I just share the story of battling cancer and the miracle, the aspect of the miracle. And I usually get into a pretty good conversation with them. And then generally, uh, I'll ask them if they want a bracelet. And then they'll say, yes, could I have one? And then I'll say, all right, I'll give you one, but I'm going to give you one so you can share it with somebody else. Because then it takes them from being the patient to being somebody that can help another patient. And I had that conversation with him last week. And, and, and sometimes you got to have that conversation real quick because they're either going to call you in or call the next person in, you know, but we sat there for 20 minutes and I'm convinced that when, when the conversation was over and I was actually the one who got called in, we both felt much better. We didn't feel like it was really cool. It was just really a cool, cool experience, but we all go through it. I always tell people, look, I have people will tell me all the time, they'll say something like, I feel so bad. You know, they'll talk to me about their problems. They come to me and they like talk to me about what they're going through. And then all of a sudden they'll stop themselves and they'll be like, well, I feel bad. It's nothing like you're going through. I'm like, slow down. Whatever you're going through is real. We just all have, we all have different tragedies in life. And mine is no worse than yours. It, what's yours is yours. What's mine is mine. Mine happens to be I hate to use the word tragedy anymore, but it's almost like a personal tragedy. You know what I mean? But we all go through it. I've never have had cancer and I've, I've never, I wouldn't say that I've really experienced that in my life. My mom had endometrial cancer and she got a hysterectomy Yeah, and the whole thing, the whole experience was kind of short. And and then it was over. And I know it's still something she thinks about, but, you know, for the rest of us, it, it was kind of a short-lived thing. So I can't say that I've had a lot of experience with it. I do have a friend who's in her 30s who was diagnosed with leukemia. So I have been talking to her. But I imagine, and you tell me if this is wrong, but I imagine that if I got a cancer diagnosis next week, I just feel like all my other problems would just, would they still be problems or would I just not even care about them anymore? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, The answer to that, there's actually two answers to that. It would be number one. um, Yes, that, that could be the possibility, but it could also, everything could compound and, when I 
when I talk with cancer patients, because I do a, a lot of uh, working with cancer patients, you, you realize that when someone's diagnosed with cancer, um, unfortunately, there's usually two things that a cancer patient thinks as soon as they get that cancer diagnosis. They think, uh, I'm going to die and get it out. And I'm not saying that's for everybody, for, but for a lot of people, because cancer is associated with death. I mean, that's, we've been conditioned to that. That's not the case. Uh, I've been battling a rare form of tissue cancer without a cure for all well, six and a half years now. And I've been told numerous times that, hey, um, you got 60 days or you got 90 days or you got six months. And it's not an arrogance or a cocky and it has cockiness that I have that, hey, I'm stronger than this. I've just, things have just lined up and we've been able to push this forward. I have fantastic, have had a fantastic group of medical professionals in four different cancer centers. I've had to move in order to get the next specialist. Um, but I think, you know, I, and I often talk about this, uh, even in my own podcast, I, I, I tend to say the same things over and over and over again, because what I've learned about podcasting is that, uh, and, and I, I learned also in the radio broadcasting industry, which I spent 30 some years in, is that we like to think that everybody listens to every word we say and they digest it all. And that's not truly the case. So I tend in my podcast to say pretty much the same thing over and over and over again. And some of it's on purpose. And I always talk about cancer being a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual battle. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, three or four different types of fights. Fights. I, I can't control the physical side of cancer. Like cancer is going to do what it's going to do. That's the truth. I can put myself in the best position to fight it physically, but it's cancer. It's not a cold. And so I have that realism. But the mental, emotional, and spiritual sides are sides that I can pretty much fight that how I choose to fight. And so I go on to usually talk about that physical, mental, and spiritual side. But then I also try to draw the analogy that if most people want to believe if they're driving down the street and they see a building on fire, that they're going to stop their car and run into that building and save whoever is in that building. We all want to believe that. But I truly believe that you don't know what you would do until you're faced with that situation. And that's the same thing with cancer. Um, when you walk into a room, no matter if you've given, been given a, a little bit of a heads up or no heads up, like in my case, I was completely blindsided at the age of 45. You walk into a room that's cold and white, and there are people there that you don't have an emotional bond with, and somebody looks at you and says, you have cancer. You think, like, all of a sudden, your mind, just sh it shuts down. I don't care. I don't care if you've been tested and they said, well, you might have cancer. I don't, it doesn't matter. I've, I've spoken 
with thousands of cancer patients and a high percentage of them, the mind just shuts down. And those two things, I'm going to die, get it out. And then everything else is a blur. And so I think a lot of it has to do with the individual person, but it also has to, de- uh, it has to do with um, how much adversity they've had in their lives. I think a lot of times either you have adversity or you don't, but if cancer is your first part of adversity, it's pretty tough emotionally. And so I think to answer your original question is, uh, originally when you're diagnosed with cancer, it may push you into that uh, part of um, everything doesn't seem uh, as big as what you're dealing with, but it could compound. What I have found with most cancer patients is that once they're in involved in cancer for a while, like for a lot of patients, it's once they get into the treatment, because the fear of the own unknown is the scary part. But once you're around cancer for a while, um, nothing really seems to phase you that isn't truly life-threatening. And so you, you learn to put perspective on things that truly don't matter. It's unfortunate that you have to get cancer to see life that way. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Um, I, I often say that cancer didn't really change me a ton because I was centered before uh, I got the disease. But since having the disease, it's really fine-tuned my senses to really experience the true beauty of of uh, putting myself in other people's paths and looking at whoever is in front of me and saying, what, what can I do for them? What is the service that I can bring to them? And, and it actually, um, you know, a lot of times people will, will have the conversation with me about how well I'm doing or, or, Hey, you don't like, you don't even carry yourself like, like you're battling cancer. And it's that that true fact is that when you focus on other people, um, you take your eyes off of yourself and what you're going through isn't as bad as it may seem to be. And so if if I spend a couple of hours on a Tuesday afternoon right after treatment trying to talk somebody else through an emotional roller coaster that they're going through because they just got bad results from their oncologist it's almost like I kind of forget that I'm not feeling well myself. Well, let's back up a little bit. Cause I want to hear about, you know, who was the pre-cancer JT? Like, you know, what was your life like when you were working, you know, right before you got your yeah. diagnosis? I fell in love uh, at an early age with what my passion was. And I'm 51 uh, but I got my first job in radio at 16 and I always wanted to be on the radio. Like that was like the coolest thing in the world to me. And, um, I had a, I had a buddy who was on the radio in Chicago. I grew up in the city of Chicago with my mom, my dad, and my brother, my older brother, Jim. Uh, 
my dad's an immigrant from Ireland, um, still has an Irish brogue, like a real thick brogue. Like if he was sitting here talking, you'd probably be like, I didn't understand what he said. I'd have to interpret it for you. But he's the most charming, um, doesn't say a lot, but his words are very impactful. Uh, my mom is the uh, most caring person in the world, but I had this older friend who did, did afternoons on a radio station in Chicago, and I would listen every single day at two o'clock because that's when he came on the air. It was just magical that he could be talking over music. And, and so I fell in love with the radio. And a couple months later, uh, he got me a job at the radio station. I literally was sweeping floors. I know that's a phrase that people use, but it's true. And a couple of months after that, uh, I was cleaning the radio station. It was about 10 minutes before midnight and the phone rang. There's a, they have this thing called the hotline. That's where management can call if there's an issue. Like if a disc jockey says something they shouldn't say or whatever. And, and he was calling me because he needed the phone number of somebody else because the guy who was supposed to come on at midnight called off sick. And I said, listen, I can stick around. He's like, well, you don't know how to run the equipment. I'm like, oh, no, I do. Like, I had taught myself how to do that. And that was my first shot. He didn't let me talk on the radio. I was hoping he would, but he didn't. But that led to a job in radio. And so I started in radio at 16. I wasn't even out of high school yet. And uh, shortly after high school, got my first radio job. And eventually uh, got on the air, became pretty good at it. Then I moved into management and that just moved from one thing to another. I traveled all around the country running radio stations. Uh, you name it, I've lived there. Um, and so when I was diagnosed with cancer, um, I had been sitting out a non-compete contract from a group of radio, or from a radio station that I had run uh, in the Denver, Colorado area, but I had been living in Scottsdale. And so I... I mean, even after my original diagnosis, after I sat out that non-compete, I got back into the radio business and ran radio stations for two to three years after my original diagnosis. But I've spent over 30 years uh, in the radio business and loved every single minute of it. Just absolutely loved it. That's incredible. Not too many people can say that about their jobs. Yeah, I, I'm... I, I got to it early and um, I don't know. I, and I think it's, it benefited me. It, it benefited me greatly because I got to my career three, four, five years before guys got out of college and I was able to work and practice that craft. And um, I'm forever grateful. And, and there were ups and downs with it too. When you're 18 years old and running a radio station with a group of guys that are in their thirties, you're thrown into the fire. And I made a lot of mistakes uh, as a young manager, but the truth is, is that it was the mistakes that I made that made me later in life become better at what I did because I learned, I learned those mistakes early enough to where, you know, I was, it, was, it was easy for me to go ahead and bounce and get another situation and not make that same mistake. And I think that was probably one of the, the reasons why I did so well in the business was I made a lot of mistakes, but I never made them twice. I made them once. 
And then I also learned at a later time to learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have to make every mistake in the book. You can learn from others and you just don't have to make those. Yeah, don't reinvent the wheel. So you were living in Scottsdale and why did you get a cancer test? For lack of a better description, why, what was it that happened that had your doctors testing you for cancer? So I had, um, I'm a Midwest guy, grew up in Chicago. And um, while I was in Colorado, um, living at altitude, uh, you know, at at a higher elevation, uh, when I moved to Colorado, I was a bit overweight. And if you're at elevation, it's harder to breathe. And so I really started paying attention to my health when I got to Colorado enjoyed hiking, loved the outdoors, had never really experienced that. Um, And over the course of a few years, I shed quite a few pounds. And then when I left Denver and moved to Scottsdale, um, I I had developed that active lifestyle. So I continued that in Scottsdale. And one day when I was traveling for business, Uh, I didn't have any time to work out per se, like I used to like go to the gym and get on an elliptical. The only thing available to me was running on a treadmill and I hate to run. Like that's not something I enjoy, but I, I had been on the road for a bit. I knew I needed to get some exercise. And so I started to run and over the course of two or three days, my right calf muscle had kind of swollen up. And it had always seemed to appear to be a little bit larger than my left, but but this was like twice the size of my left leg. And so uh, during that time while I was uh, traveling, I was actually in Chicago where my parents were at. I had had dinner with my mom and dad, and my mom said something about it to me. And so I, you know, okay, all right, mom, I'll go see the doctor, blah, 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 blah. So when I got back to uh, the Scottsdale area a couple of weeks later, um, I sought out a doctor. I, I didn't even have a doctor in Scottsdale. So went to a doctor, initial, um, you know, like a physical. And, and I, I'll be very honest with you, in that 30 minutes of that physical, I almost forgot why I was there. I wanted to just to take a look at my leg. I thought I pulled a muscle or something. And so I remember when I... Um, I pulled up my pant leg to show the doctor uh, my calf muscle. She's like, oh, my gosh, that's huge. And I'm like, hold on a second. That's not the big one. And so I I pulled up the other leg, and she was like, oh, my gosh. And she was a general doctor. Like, um, she wasn't a specialist, like an uh, uh, occupational therapist or orthopedic. She's just a regular doctor. And so... Over the course of several months, I just started having tests and they were really just look, first of all, they rule out a DVT, which is a blood clot. They rule that out. Yeah. Then they look for a pull in a tendon or is there just fluid buildup? And, and so I, to be honest with you, they just ran me through a bunch of tests. And one day I got a call from the the general doctor's office, which instructed me that I needed to go see an orthopedic oncologist. And over the course of the conversation, which was brief with the the physician's like assistant, 
Uh, she mentioned it was an orthopedic oncologist, but she also had said she also had said that um, that this is the best orthopedic surgeon in Scottsdale. So I really didn't hear oncologist. I heard orthopedic. And so when I showed up a week later is when I was told for the first time, like cancer was never discussed with me. It was never even a possibility. The first time I heard the word cancer was when the orthopedic oncologist told me that he believed I had late stage sarcoma in my right leg. I mean, I was completely and entirely blindsided at the age of 45 that I had a rare form of late stage cancer. Did you ever have any other symptoms? I mean, even if it was things that looking back on it later, you recognize that they were symptoms. You just didn't. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. Like, so it's funny after after you're diagnosed with cancer, maybe not the initial time, but after the cancer had spread, you start doing more types of tests. Like you do genealogy tests, you do all of those types of things. And so as we tracked it and we started to track the last 10 to 15 years of my life, my stop prior to Colorado, I was in upstate New York in the Rochester Buffalo area. Um, and so for about eight years before my diagnosis, um, I started to get fatigue, my late 30s, because I was diagnosed at 45. But there were times where I would come home from work and at six o'clock I'd be wiped out. Now, I just thought it was, the job was stressful. I had a lot going on. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, but other than that, like, I tell this to people all the time, for me, my experience, and I, I hate to always give absolutes, you know, I'm, I'm really careful about that because yeah. everybody's different. But for me, I've never had pain, I shouldn't say that, I haven't had a lot of pain that's associated with cancer. I've had pain because a tumor has pushed on an organ or on the sciatic nerve, but actual cancer pain I haven't experienced a lot of it. So there wasn't a lot of pain that was associated to the original diagnosis, maybe some fatigue, a little bit of a lethargic. And then of course, when, when the calf muscle ballooned, you're like, okay, what is this? But again, I associated it with a pulled muscle or yeah. a tendon or some fluid, something to that extent. So do you remember the, the conversation? I mean, what exactly the doctor said to you? Yeah, I, I, word for word, like word for word. And, and I'll give it to you. Um, I remember I walked into the office and my appointment was at nine. And it was the earliest that the doctor would see anybody. If it, if he would have done it at eight, I'd have done because I wanted to be in the office. And I remember sitting in, in the lobby thinking, oh, man, I got stuff to do today, you know? And so again, now remember, I, I had cancer had never been discussed, just had never been discussed. Maybe it was brought up and I did, just didn't hear it, but it was like, it wasn't even, I was like, all right, pull the fluid out. Let's get on with life. Yeah. So I walk into the office um, and the door opens up 
And the orthopedic oncologist walks in and shakes my hand because I had never met him. And he introduces, introduces himself, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And then behind him, I'm thinking it's a nurse or uh, an interim, you know, an inner doctor. Uh, and, but it wasn't. He's like, and this is Dr. So-and-so. And then it just continued. And this is Dr. So-and-so. And this is Dr. So-and-so. And this is our staff psychologist or psychiatrist, counselor. That's what it was, counselor. And I still didn't think anything. I'm like, I got stuff to do. You know, I got like, okay, let's, you know, let's go. And so he sits down, younger man, maybe in his late 30s, young 40s, good looking guy, well put together, buttoned up. And he sits down and I can tell he's, um, he's anxious. Like I read people pretty well. I can read the room pretty well. I can tell he's a little anxious and I'm like, well, maybe I'm intimidating. I'm not saying much, you know, I'm a bigger guy uh, at the time I was. And, uh, he starts typing on his computer. He's like, well, uh, so we, uh, this was your symptoms. And so we did this test and we ruled this out. We did this test and we ruled this out. We did. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, come on, dude, I got, I got stuff to do. And all of a sudden he looks at me and his mood changes and it almost gets a little more eerie. Like it's like I could sense the change in his, how he was handling things. And he looked at me and he said, well, unfortunately what I think we have found here uh, is a large mass. And I'm like, okay. And he said, I said, a large mass. He said, yeah, a large mass. And I said it again. I said, large mass. And then things started clicking. And I'm like, you mean tumor? And he took a deep breath. And he looked at me. And he said, yeah, I think we've found a large mass. And I looked at him without hesitation. And I said, hey, doc, you don't know me. I don't know you but I'm not afraid to die. I know where I'm going. I'm a Christian. It's how I've lived my life. Just shoot me straight. And he took another deep breath and he started tearing up. And I was like, again, I'm at that point, like I, you, you, you stop thinking, Hey, I got to get to work. You're like, okay, for me, I was like, all right, let's, because I knew he was, he was having a hard time bringing the word. So I wanted to make sure I knew what I was dealing with right? Wanted to stay in the moment. And I said, just shoot me straight. And he looked at me and he said, well, this large mass. And I said, ah, 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 ah. He said, well, this tumor, I think, is infected. I looked at him, I said, infected. And then he looked at me and he says, unfortunately, we believe it's a rare form of tissue cancer. It's late stage, and unfortunately, we just we don't have a cure. And then you're like, okay. And for me, the next thing that I said was, all right, well, what's next? What do we got to do? I never, I never experienced what I shared just a few minutes ago. I never experienced the, uh, you know, you told me I had cancer, I'm going to die, get it out. I never experienced that. But in looking back, I realized it was because from a very young age, 
my parents allowed me to have adversity. And, you know, when I was four years old and there was a problem, they didn't fix it for me. Now it was a four-year-old problem. But my, you know, my dad, again, being an immigrant, immigrant, having 12 brothers and sisters, his parents didn't have a lot of time to fix problems for him, skirmishes with his brothers and sisters. He was on the farm when he was eight. So that really benefited me greatly. And then getting into the radio business as a 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20-year-old, 20 being ahead of my time, but also having to learn by getting fired and making mistakes. For me, when I was diagnosed with cancer, cancer was just another problem. And I don't mean to diminish that for anybody who's going through that. That is not judgment. I'm just speaking for me. I don't ever look at a cancer patient and be like, and just tough it up. Because cancer is devastating. And, and it's devastating for me too. But I had a different experience. And the experience was because I was blindsided, because I had the tools to be able to separate the physical and the emotional impact of it. Because the emotional side and that problem solving, I had already learned how to do. And not everybody does. And so for me, that was, I, I can, I replay that conversation in my mind. Anytime somebody asks me, it's the same exact conversation. It, that, that was, that was my experience. And um, like I said, I, I don't think anybody knows how they're going to deal with it until they're sitting in that room. Yeah. I, I must feel blessed that I was in that room by myself. Because if you have a loved for me, if I were to have a loved one in that room in that moment, I, the person I am, I would focus more on them than on myself. And I think those were crucial moments in my own life to being able to say, okay, cancer, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and bad. I don't care who you are, but I understand how to navigate through problems. So I'm going to start that process. Um, so, and I hope it's not impolite for me to ask some of these questions, but, uh, you know, again, I can only imagine, imagine what I, what I might go through my head, but like you said, you, you never know yeah. what happens, but I mean, did, it sounds like you were very methodical about, okay, well, we have this problem we got to figure out what to do with it. But was there a time when, you know, maybe you're more human, maybe you're more warm and fuzzy side was sort of like, shit. Yeah. This, this could kill me. Yeah. Um, I, in, you know, I was diagnosed October 18th of 2013. Uh, over the course of, six and a half years, I've probably had six to eight times where I would describe as mini breakdowns. I, I had one um, maybe about a month ago. Now, when, let me describe breakdown. Um, the breakdown, you know, there's two sides to a breakdown. There's this, you know, maybe up here and down here. Uh, what I had four to five weeks ago was I, I live in Florida. 
um, I was cleaning out my patio. I just got the diagnosis that we had found three new tumors near my heart and a pericardial effusion. We had found several new lesions in my spine and one in my bladder. And I was having to make a decision about using radiation near my heart, knowing that we only get one shot at this. So do we use the radiation in hopes to killing the tumors or do we hold off and try to use chemotherapy and then have radiation in the bank at a later time? And I had, you know, in a very short time, five or six days had uh, my medical oncologist, my radiation oncologist and a cardiac oncologist talking, talking me through what was at stake. And then at the end of the conversation, them looking at me and saying, okay, now you get to decide. Now, look, I mean, that, that, that can be, be tough. And so I had made the decision what we were going to do. Um, after all of the information and a couple of days later, I was cleaning out the patio and I had the TV on, was listening to some music and for about 45 minutes, uh, I might tear up if I do, I apologize, but for about 45 minutes, um, for, for about 45 minutes, I mean, I fell apart, cried, but it wasn't, I'm going to die. It was just the emotions just opening up early on in my diagnosis. When I didn't understand cancer, maybe after the first diagnosis, it was actually the second diagnosis. The second time I had, or the first time I had metastatic disease because my cancer started in my right calf and then it moved to my sinus cavity. Um, and that second, second phase of treatment was difficult because anybody who's been around cancer for a long time or has had metastatic disease, if you pry, maybe not worth the pry, but if you inquire, you know, the first time you get cancer, it's pretty difficult. Don't get me wrong. But but that wasn't the toughest day. The, the toughest day was the day it came back, because you, uh, if 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 you get cancer and you go through treatment and they tell you you're cancer free, which they did for me, and then just a few months later it had come back. That day it comes back, everything changes, right? When cancer comes back, it changes everything. Shortly after that time. Uh, I had dark moments. I'll, I'll just be very honest with you. Like, not dark like I contemplated suicide, but I got into a dark place. Like, you get into that place of why, like, why even try? Like, what's the point? But I kept it to myself, um, which was good and bad at the same point. It was okay for me because I just had that mind that sooner or later I can compartmentalize and move on. But there were probably three or four days in there where it was really tough. But um, over the course of six and a half years, you know, on that scale, I mean, there have been times where I've had full mental breakdowns. Like not where I need to be put into a hospital, not like that, but where I went through a period of uh, six or seven days where I was just on edge. Um, treatment had been beating me up. You know, chemotherapy just chemotherapy kills your brain cells. You can't, you can't. Like right now, I can't even feel my fingers because of the radiation and chemotherapy. 
And so you compound that with this poison that's going into your body that's supposed to help you and and you get angry quickly and your fuse is short and you don't know why you're doing it and you're not trying to do it but probably you know probably if i say eight times probably 12 times like there are probably three or four i didn't i didn't recognize but yeah i have them um i just don't stay in them like I allow myself not to feel well. I allow myself to have a bad moment or bad hour. But what I don't allow myself to do is stay in it. The, the minute I feel better, I get out of it. Because I learned, I learned early on that um, it's with cancer, like every day I have, like every day I have a bad hour, couple hours or moments. And so like, like, let's just, let's just play this out. I I had chemo a week, this time a week ago today. Now I didn't start feeling, I felt lethargic on Friday, but Saturday morning I got up at five and went hunting with my buddy Saturday morning because I knew I had a window before the chemotherapy was going to tank me. Um, on Saturday afternoon is when I started to feel sick. So I had several hours that were bad on Sunday or Saturday, several hours on Sunday, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But what I don't allow myself to do is allow a bad moment on a Saturday and a bad moment on a Wednesday to be linked together. So now I've just lost, a, excuse me, a bad week. So the minute I feel better, Physically, mentally, emotionally, I move on. And that's the part that I can control. I, I, I can't, I don't live, I don't live in a world where I can decide how I'm going to feel because it's cancer. But I can decide that once I feel better, I just move on from it. I kind of separate from it. Were you always like that even before cancer? Were you sort of that person that just, you know, doesn't let things get you down too much? Yeah, I think early on growing up as a child, I was extremely overweight. And so I faced rejection or what I thought was rejection. I mean, some of the guys that I went to kindergarten with, like, like there's some of the guys and girls that I went to kindergarten with, there's like 30 of us that are still friends and we meet every single year like but what i thought was rejection um taught me to be able to overcome early on the radio business has a way of doing that too because you're judged on how good you are and you know like it and it's there's no science to how good you are you're either your boss either likes you or he doesn't. You have good ratings or you don't. What you know, it it taught me. So I, I I had the ability to do that, but that's one thing now that I'm thinking about it is not getting cancer, but battling cancer every single day for six and a half years has really honed that skill of okay, time to move on. Just time to move on. 
Well, when you left the doctor's office that day, do you think you really understood the full gravity of what had been said to you? No. No, I don't think you really understand that until you're in it for a while. I guess I thought, all right, I had already, I had already learned, I learned at a young age that you get one shot at this life, you get a shot. And um, I learned that everybody at some point is going to die, right? And not to be morbid, but mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I, looking back though, being 51, uh, I've got a lot of young people in my life just based on the community that I've been put in like a lot of my my friends are in their 30s they all got kids and um and so seeing some of the things that they're experiencing I wish I would have experienced like I never had children um but I I think yeah I I think I don't think you really understand or realize it until you're in it for a while what um what it is, how big it is. Again, I, I looked at it like, okay, it's a problem. And I think we're going to be able to navigate through this because I'd been able to navigate through problems my whole life. Um, it didn't, it didn't really hit me how severe it was until the cancer had spread into my sinus cavity. At that point, it was a game changer because at that point, when, when my cancer had come back, the first conversation I had with an oncologist was, um, look, I, I think it would be best for you to step away from work. That was the conversation. And to me, you know, a kid who went to work at, you know, I went to work my first job when I was 12, my dad, because he went to the farm at eight, like he was like, you need to get a job, you know, at, at 12. My friends were like a job at 12. My dad was like, look, you're late. Like, but for me, work had been an important part of my life. My dad's the hardest working man I ever met. And he instilled that in me. Although my dad worked physical labor his whole life, I work, I didn't work physical labor. I, you know, but it was still work. Once that conversation hit me, and I pushed that off for a few years, but that's when the gravity of the situation hits, you know, when you're 45, 46 years old and somebody looks at you and says, you need to walk away from your job, your passion, what you've done your whole life, you know, that's a deep breath moment. And you start to think, what? And then, you know, take into consideration, most people, when they get to 45, between 45 and 60s, that's your best earning years. And so I was like, what? Like, you, you want me to walk away? Like, I, I've attained this level. I've moved all over the country and boom, 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 boom. And now all of a sudden you just arbitrarily want to tell me, hey, it's in my best interest. Like, that was, that's when it really set in. Well, and at the risk of sounding really ignorant, was it because they knew that you weren't going to be feeling well and that you were going to be spending a lot of time with doctors? I think both. Um, I think my cancer, and and again, so 
uh, it'll be seven years in October. You know, cancer moves at the speed of light. And that's what I tell people all the time. What they knew about the disease I had or have, what they knew about it six and a half years ago and what they know about it today, it, it's not even close, right? So at the time, like I have a rare form of tissue cancer now, but like six and a half years ago, like that, it was extremely rare. What they knew about it was differently. I mean, like I said, early on, they told me, hey, you got three months. You got three months. And you left that office that day with them telling you you had three months? No, uh, no. But shortly after, they didn't push that conversation right away. Like that would like, I, I think that's when I look back at it. And the reason why the doctor was so nervous was because he had never met me. He had delivered bad news like this before, but this was the first time he had ever seen sarcoma. So I think he was kind of shell-shocked about what sarcoma was because if you Google sarcoma, it's not good. Like don't, like, don't Google it. But if you Googled it seven years ago, it was a death sentence. It was a complete death sentence. And, and I'll be very honest with you, this orthopedic oncologist actually did me a favor because even in the light of it all, with this tumor in my leg, the conventional wisdom at that point was, was uh, to do surgery on the tumor first. And he had thought that if we did surgery first without radiation, we would end up losing the leg. Now, there is part of me that says, if we would have taken the leg, would the cancer had not spread? But that's just me guessing. I'm not a doctor. But he did me a favor by that. But like I said, six and a half years ago, if you Googled sarcoma, it was three months. That's just how it, how it was. But again, the advancements year after year. And so listen, I live in a, I live in a 60 to 90 day window and have been for the last four years, all we're trying to do is push it forward another 60 to 90 days. But in, in cancer, especially in my, in, in, in my, in the disease I have, there's a lot that ha can happen positive in 60 days. It's not like, you know, breast cancer, uh, childhood cancer, the cure rates are a lot higher, but they've been studying them a long time. There's been a lot of money thrown at them. And I don't mean that disrespectful. People always ask me if I, if I, if I'm upset that breast cancer gets a majority. No, I don't. Cancer's cancer. Like you got cancer. It's bad. I want you cured. Like, I, you know, but, but as we study this, as we learn things all the time. And so we've just taken approach and approach that over the last four years is that we're just hoping and praying we get another 60 days because the one thing, and, and this is where I do cry, is where I tear up, is that it is so humbling to me every single day when I wake up and I pray and I'm like, there's a hundred thousand doctors and researchers somewhere in this world and they're trying to find a cure for me. And that is one of the most I don't know how to explain it, but there are. And so I tell cancer patients all the time that, you know, you get a, 
a doctor tells you we can treat this for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. I had this recently happen to me with tumors near the heart. One of my oncologists told me, I think we can treat this for 60 more days. Then two days later, I had another oncologist say, hey, look, I need to share some bad news with you. I'm like, okay. He said, I think we can only treat this for six months. And I, I chuckled. And this was a newer oncologist to me. He said, well, what are you laughing about? I said, well, Dr. So-and-so two days ago told me only 60 days. So at least we're moving in the right direction here. And he laughed. And I'm like, listen, I've been battling this a long time. And only the Lord knows. And I had this experience a few years ago when I had to tell my parents the first time. And this was difficult. The first time when you have to tell your parents that there's a timeline. Because I I. I believed in the timeline. When somebody gave me the timeline, I, I was like, okay, better get a will, better call an attorney, right? Better get a will, better be prepared. I'm single, I gotta make plans. Um, I remember telling my mom and dad Thanksgiving morning, um, and I remember being uneasy of that conversation for a few weeks. This was the first time you told them? First time I told them. Because just for our listeners, you were diagnosed on October 18th, 2013. Correct. Yeah. And this was so three, four years ago. Like I had been told, I just didn't tell anybody. Like I, you know, I mean, how do you share that? What's that? For a few years, you didn't tell them? Probably a couple of years. Yeah. I just, I didn't, to me, I, I, there's part of, there's part for me, there's part of cancer that um, when you're in the midst of multiple treatments over long periods of time, you almost go into a fetal position because you're just trying to get through it. And so there isn't room for emotional conversations. There isn't like, you're just trying to survive it. I mean, there are times there've been, 20 times where I've been on the couch or in the bed and I'm just praying that I have enough strength to get off the couch and into the bathroom, let alone pick up the phone and initiate a conversation. I mean, I, I assume that most people in my inner circle after the second or third metastasis realized it was pretty bad. Right. I assume that I, and so I remember having this conversation with my parents and I got worked up about it. I flew in uh, uh, for Thanksgiving, like I do most years. And I remember saying, Hey, I, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, listen, fortunately the doctors said they think they can treat this for another, I forget what it was, 90 days or six months. Like I said, this has happened so much. I, I can't even put them together anymore. Um, and I remember my dad said with a very thick, Irish bro. He said, son, we're all going to die. He said, just don't die before it's time. And like many times in my childhood, because of my dad's brogue and the words he chose, I'd have to sit there and think, all right, what did he mean by that? Like, what did he mean? And, but instantaneously, like 
there have been times where he has said something and I really didn't understand it till two years later, but almost right after I understood what he was saying. He's like, look, just, just don't give up. Don't quit. Like there ain't no reason to quit. Like don't, don't let somebody else tell you that life is over today. Like it may be over in 90 days, but you live today and you live tomorrow and you live the next day. And at that point, that's when all the fear went away. Before that, I would say it was 70% there. But once my dad said that, and because my dad was the one I was really nervous about, I wasn't so nervous about my mom. Why? My, what's that? Why? Um, because my mom and I are very much alike. And I knew, I, I just, my dad, very quiet. Like I said early on, um, my dad doesn't say much, but when he says it, it's pretty impactful. He watches more. My mom's outgoing and she talks. And so for me, it was, it was just the perfect, if there's a perfect way to tell your parents something of that magnitude, it was perfect. It was perfect for me. Because I was worried that my dad would shut down, go into his bedroom, you know, get his Walkman, go outside, go for a walk for three hours, and it would impact him in an emotional way that I wouldn't be able to comfort him. And instead, again, my dad's one of 12, tough man, like just tough. He showed a tender side to him that was there. But again, my, my dad wasn't this kind of guy like when I was six, if I fell and I skinned my knee, he wasn't like, oh, let me kiss the knee. He'd be like, wipe that off and get up and go. And so he showed a tender moment to me in that time. And the way my mom looked at my dad, because I think she if she was having the conversation, she would say too, that would have been tougher on my dad. And it was just perfect moment. Like my mom is, um, my mom's an extrovert, but um, I was more concerned about my dad. Now, as I'm in this disease more and more, I've learned how to communicate to them both individually and then together. I have to do it in a separate way because no child should ever have to tell their parents that they've got a disease that may take their life. I mean, and vice versa, parents to their children. That's, that's tough. I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm very open and vulnerable about my disease on my social media. And there are, I always have to have a conversation with my parents before I do anything out of respect for them. And there's only so much that parents can take because, it, you know, for me, and there's a lot of cancer patients uh, like me who, once they were diagnosed, they've been in constant treatment. And 90% of the time when I walk out of the hospital, I'm getting bad news. That's just the truth. And so if you don't temper those conversations with certain people, um, you can create great heartache. And my dad will be 80 
next month. My mom's, I'll say she's 50, but she's in her seventies. Um, <laughs> but, but they, I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't ta- talk to my parents and I know they deal with it di- differently. Um, they both lose sleep over it. Um, my dad is more, uh, my dad is more, he takes my lead. Um, and he always wants to make sure this is right for me. Um, my mom, I can give her the worst news, but as long as I say to her, but it's going to be okay, mom, because we've got a plan. She's okay. And I don't know what they do in their private world. I'm sure they both lose a lot of sleep over it, but hearing their voice every single day. And I think them hearing mine is great comfort to all of us. Do you guys appreciate your time together more? Yeah. Which has been difficult because, um, mom and dad, I usually see them three to four times a year, but over the course of the last maybe 18 months, I think I've only seen them twice, two or three times. My mom is on dialysis. So it's harder for her to get away. And then part of that 18 months, she's been in a rehab center because she broke her leg, both legs, different times. And I, my disease, it's hard, it's hard for me to travel when I'm deep in treatment because my immune system gets pushed down. And so uh, I saw them early February. I had to go back to Chicago for a buddy of mine, kid I went to kindergarten with, uh, passed from cancer. And I was able to kind of walk through his, his battle with him. And I went back in February, which is I broke my own rule. I, I very rarely travel in winter. I just don't do it because it's just, it, it's stupid for a cancer pay, for me, I should say. Um, so I got to see him for a couple of days. Um, but I've already, I've already discussed with them coming down, hopefully in October after some of this passes. Um, I was hoping to be there early June for my dad's 80th, but that's probably not smart on anybody's part because they live outside of Chicago and it's completely closed down. Um, but we do, we, but it's kind of, it's also kind of weird because we, although we don't, we haven't been able to see each other a lot over the last 18 months, we talk every single day. So it's almost like we're with each other every single day. It's pretty cool. I'm, I'm curious. I know you touched on it a little bit, but when you finally did tell them it had already been a few years. So what was it about that time? Like, why were you like, okay, now today's the day. Um, because I had, I had exhausted treatment at my third cancer center. And so when I, I exhausted treatment at my first cancer center, because they were only equipped to deal with orthopedic cancer. The second cancer center, uh, I had exhausted treatment once it had metastasized. And then I left Arizona because I had to get Arizona in the background of my life. Like, um, and some cancer patients may understand this, but there's sometimes where you just, you have to close a chapter. And so for me, I, I was told by the oncologist in Scottsdale that, look, 
if this cancer comes back again, we're not equipped to treat this. Now, I could have stayed in Arizona because there's a Mayo Clinic there. But there was part of a mental chapter that I needed to close. And so I had decided to go back to work. I went back to work for iHeartMedia up in the Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts area. And I had my cancer come back probably eight months after I got to work at iHeart, which was a total panic to me because number one, I didn't know if it would be considered a pre-existing condition. I just went to work for a new company. I didn't like you, that like that fear and anxiety comes in. And so I'd gone to Dana-Farber. I got to Dana-Farber and we had done a bunch of treatment and my disease was considered stable. And I remember having a conversation with my oncologist, who's still part of my team, great lady. But I remember saying to her, so, well, if the cancer comes back, like, you know, what, what do you, what do you think we'll do? And she looked at me and she said, not a lot we can do. We can continue to pound it with the same treatment. And in my mind, I learned enough about cancer that if you're going back to an old treatment that didn't work. And what's the point? And so um, it was shortly after that, that I realized that I had to figure out what my next step was. And in order to do so, I had been pretty much told that, look, it was good news. It was, hey, everything's stable, but we can only, if this comes back, we can only treat it for another, whatever it was, 90 days. And so it was at that point, after being told several times, 60, 90, six months, you know, I was just like, I was emotionally stable enough to have that conversation. I think I almost, during those earlier times, I was trying to have the conversation with myself first. And so it was kind of like, you know, it might have seemed like ripping a Band-Aid off, but I... It wasn't like I had just ripped it off. It was like a little by little, I'm pulling it up, pulling it up. And then finally I ripped it off. And so because I had been around cancer and we had had multiple metastatic reoccurrences, I felt like, all right, my parents have heard this enough to know that cancer, there's a good chance cancer is going to be part of my life the rest of my life. And so I felt like, all right, instead of, ignoring this, just have the conversation. So were they upset that you didn't tell them sooner? No, I, to be honest with you, I think they knew, like, I, I, again, I, I think they knew that, uh, my disease had progressed. I think they knew, I don't think they were upset. Um, I think if you asked them, I think they would probably say they knew and they were okay giving me um, enough space to come to terms with it because the, the coming to terms with it, although at the moment I was diagnosed, I was like, hey, look, I'm not afraid to die. And I wasn't afraid to die, but there are different phases of that. Like you go through, you know, for the longest time, I wouldn't put pictures on the wall because I was like, why would I do that? <laughs> you know, like, 
like you you go through this these different phases and so i think i think telling my parents was truly that at that moment that was probably when all the fear of death and all the fear of this disease had kind of just went by the wayside. That's interesting. It's almost like it just became your new normal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I often say that if I had to get cancer, I'm glad I got it the way I got it. Because to me, um, when you get cancer at 45 or you get cancer at 80, I would think it's a different experience. I would think so too. Yeah. You get cancer at 80. You're like, ah, I had a good life. <laughs> you know, it was great. It's good. Kind of sucks that it's, I'm going out this way. Or you might become very bitter and angry. Like I, I, I can't speak for anybody, but for me at 45 being diagnosed, like I said, I'd already been pretty centered but at 45, when I was diagnosed with cancer, maybe a year after I was diagnosed with cancer, I learned about certain things. Like, I learned to watch kids playing with their dad at the park. I learned to watch that and truly experience it, like, in a way that brought me joy. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was laying on the couch. I spend a lot of time on the couch when I'm in treatment. Um, and I, it was one of those beautiful days. Uh, it's probably about eight weeks ago. So you still had snow. So I apologize. <laughs> um, but I had all the doors and windows open. It was maybe 74, 75, great breeze. And I have some bird feeders out in my side yard. And there were like two or three bluebirds that were just like going crazy. And I experienced that in a way that I don't think I would have 10 years ago. Laughter, like I hear somebody laughing, I laugh with them. Like I may not physically do it because it might look like I'm creepy or something, <laughs> but I, I experience moments. I mean, I see, uh, I see how my buddies interact with their children or their wives. Um, I never allow a moment to be wasted. One of the greatest gifts, like I, I tell people all the time, cancer's bad. I wish it upon nobody, but it's not all been bad. I have experienced some great gifts as a result of it. Um, and I don't mean monetary or I don't mean any of that stuff. I mean, people are very kind to me and have helped me because, you know, uh, cancer is expensive. And we all, you know, we all think that insurance takes care of everything. And it does not. I can tell you that. But just, just the level, the amount of kindness that has been shown to me um, since being diagnosed with cancer um, meeting people who have truly made an impact on my life. I, I have a, I have a doctor at the Mayo Clinic and she's a doctorate of, she has a doctorate of Chinese medicine and she's part of the integrative staff. And I met her almost three years ago. She gave me acupuncture, um, started about three years ago. 
And she single-handedly in the last three years has contributed more to my overall well-being than any other person. And part of that is she's a connector. So she connects the dots. And her her large part in my life is acupuncture. It's you know, relief from the disease, relief from the pain, relief from the treatment. And early on, I went to her because I had decided to come off all the opiates that they had given me over the course of three years. And I just didn't want them in my system anymore. But she has, she's taught me about mindfulness. She has taught me about diet and nutrition. She has put other people in my path who have helped me tremendously. That's a gift. Like that's a gift I received because of this disease. Some of the friendships, like I tell this to people often. Um, like I said, when you're diagnosed with cancer, a lot of people think, all right, you got cancer, I'm going to die, get it out. But it's not just the person diagnosed. It's most people, when they hear the word cancer, they think death and get it out. That's what they think. And so everybody has this preconceived idea as to cancer. And so I have this conversation often when, when I have a cancer patient who calls me and they're emotionally wrecked because somebody in their life that they thought should have been there for them isn't. It happens all the time. And I, I go through this exercise with them where I'm like, all right, take out a sheet of paper. And I physically make them take out a sheet of paper. And I'm like, two columns. And, and people who you think would have been there for you and people who you think wouldn't have been, right? You do that early on. And you put every hundred people, you put them in one to two columns. You'll get 40% of that wrong. It's the truth. I mean, and it's not because people are bad or selfish or they don't want to be there for you, but sometimes their emotional capability isn't able because they think cancer, death, get it out. And they don't know what to say. I also tell this, I tell this to people a lot. You have cancer, people will sometimes say the stupidest stuff to you because they don't know what to say. Yeah. And I just tell someone's ever said to you. Yeah. Um, I had a buddy, we laugh about this. I had a buddy that we talked, it was one of these guys I talked to every single day for maybe eight years, he was a colleague um, in the record business. And we talked every single day for eight years. Just to, We just liked each other. We just used my bud. He lived in Nashville. I met him in New York. And then uh, we continued our relationship through Denver. I was Denver for three or four years and into Scottsdale. And we'd have a conversation. And then right after I got diagnosed with cancer, I stopped hearing from him. And so I was in Scottsdale for maybe another year, year and a half. And then I got out. I went up into the Northeast, got back into radio. And, and then we got our relationship back on track. And then I had another metastatic recurrence. And this was, so my calf was number one, sinus cavity was number two. Then it went to my stomach, abdomen, pelvis. So this time, uh, it was probably my sciatic nerve. Yeah. So this is like my fourth recurrence. And 
again, I was very public with it. And we had already started conversing again. But when this cancer came back, he called me. And the conversation, the feel of the conversation changed. And I recognized in that moment, he don't have a problem with me. He has a problem with the cancer. Like he, like that's making him nervous. <laughs> so he says to me, he's like, man, I got to get up there. We got to have dinner before it's too late. <laughs> I just laughed. It was like, but, but that's what he was thinking. And so that's when I learned, you just got to give people grace. People say it to me often. I usually go to Nashville twice a year for a conference, a radio conference. And I see a lot of people that I've known throughout the years. And if I have, a, if I have 500 conversations, 300 of them are like, hey, man, I follow everything you do. And I know I don't comment a lot. And I'm like, it's okay. I, I'm not looking for everybody to tell me, hey, it's good. That's not it. I'm trying to help people through this just in case they encounter it. And so people say stuff all the time. A lot of times people say, uh, there's a lot of stupid quotes that come with cancer that mean nothing. And everybody's different. Like for some person, for some people, they like to talk about bucket lists. I won't say that word. I I can't do it because to me, it signifies something that I don't want it to signify. So um, sometimes I never, I never refer to what I'm going through as a journey. I just don't because it's not for me and for other people. It may be, and I'm okay with that. I don't judge them. For me, I just associate that word journey with the negative aspect for me. And so um, sometimes when people say, um, you got this, I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> I may look like I do, but I really don't. Um, but, but again, I, um, I've, I'm going to cry again, but I, I am amazed at the amount of kindness there truly is in this world. I mean, there are just moments that change the course for me. And it's, it's, it's a, you know, yesterday I was sitting here at this desk and I was on a zoom call with a, my buddy and his wife's teenage son who wants to be a songwriter. We spend a couple hours a week together just working on music. And, and as I was sitting here with him, uh, one of my friends in the neighborhood, uh, Angie and Josh are their names. Angie texted me because she had two of her five daughters out on a walk and they just stopped over to say hi. And that moment of having Davis, who was on the Zoom call, playing his guitar and having Angie, my one of my friends and their two daughters in my house just completely changed the direction of everything. And so if it's a text message or a card or a random call or somebody pop, I, I had some neighbors about six weeks ago, just their Four, two kids, mom and dad, I probably had three conversations with them in two years. Just pop over on a Saturday afternoon, knock on the back door and hand me uh, a, 
a plastic bag full of some blueberries that they had just gotten from, uh, uh, you know, uh, that they had just bought, you know, because they bought them in a, in a bushel, I guess that's how you buy them. But just that moment, those things truly make a difference. And I'm never, I never lose sight of that. And it's those types of things that continue to push me forward day by day. Because the, the thing that I think the misconception people I think the thing that people forget about cancer is that, you know, you and I are going to have this conversation and you probably think about this conversation tomorrow and you might think about it um, over the weekend. You might think about early next week and somebody might say, Hey, I I enjoyed that. Or that was the stupidest podcast you ever done. That guy's an idiot. But no matter what, let's just say tomorrow you don't think about it. I still live with it. I, I, I'm going to bed with it. And in the middle of the night when I have to get up and go to the bathroom because uh, I'm starting to feel sick and it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm dry heaving in the toilet. I, I, and then on Tuesday next week, I'm living with it. And it's a constant constant, constant. That's probably the biggest misconception I think that people have is that um, that from time to time it goes. And for me, the physical symptoms go, but the emotional, the mental, the spiritual battle is constant. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful and blessed because I don't have the, I don't fight the emotional as, as much do because I know how to do that. I took me a while to do it, to be able to compartmentalize it, but that's probably the biggest misconception about the disease. If you're battling the disease actively, and then, you know, take into consideration, I deal with a lot of cancer patients who, um, I would say this, when you're diagnosed with cancer, uh, cancer is going to be part of your life, the rest of your life. And it also depends on how emotional or mental you allow that to be, because I think for a lot of patients, let's just say they have cancer and then they're in remission or they're considered cancer free. I think at some point in life, they're always in the back of their mind is, is it going to come back? Like, is that other shoe going to drop? And for a lot of people, that's difficulty. I think it's almost been a blessing. I won't call it a blessing, but because I've had to battle this disease every single day for six and a half years, there's nothing you can throw at me that I'm surprised by. I just like when I when I walk into the cancer center, when I walk into Mayo Clinic for my scans, I know there's a good chance they're going to tell me there's some growth because there's been growth. Every 60 days, every 90 days for the last six and a half years. So I'm almost like, it's not prepared in a negative way. I'm just like, okay. Um, last year, I, I was with my radiation oncologist, and he told me that there were six new lesions that they found. I forget where they were. But that's pretty much par for the course for me. I usually have between three and six areas 
you know, part of my disease is stable, like, which means it's not grown, but then there's, well, this area is grown a little bit more and we see this spot and we see this spot. And, uh, he said, well, we, we found six new areas and I looked at them and I said, and they were, they were not in major organs. So they were in my spine or in the tissue, fat tissue or muscle tissue or in the bone. And I looked at him, I said, well, I said, hey, at least they're not major organs. And he just laughed. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he's like, you're the only guy who I can tell that you have six new areas. And you're like, okay, well, that's a good news. And I'm like, but it is good news. Because if it's in the heart, if it's in the liver, if it's in the lungs, that's a game changer. So we can treat or not choose to treat something that's in my leg, it's not going to kill me. So I don't know. I think it's all about perspective, but I think a lot of it has to do because I've been in the trenches in this since day one. Well, I hate to use the expression bucket list now. Yeah. But I have to ask you, I mean, are there things that you've always wanted to do or experience that became more important? Yeah, and some of them I've done, and some I still need to do. Um, Machu Picchu um, in Peru. Um, I want to do Machu Picchu. Are you familiar? Yeah, I haven't been there. Okay, so it's uh, one of the most, like, I've only seen pictures. Um, I've had some friends who have done it. I have a buddy um, that lived and grew up in Peru. Um, it's a, it's a three day, really difficult hike. So I don't know if I'll be able to hike the whole thing. I might have to take a bus halfway. Cause they do that. You can take a bus oh. a third of the way, two thirds of the way, but I love to do Machu Picchu. Um, my dad's an immigrant from Ireland and he came over when he was 18 and I want to be able to see Ireland through my dad's eyes. And I, I pray I get the chance. I just do. The circumstance hasn't presented itself. And that's why I don't use that word bucket list because it may not be meant to be. Um, you know, my dad just can't pick up and leave my mom. My mom doesn't drive. She has to be in dialysis three days a week. They depend on one another. Mom can't go to Ireland. There, when, when, you know, if I could even coordinate me and my dad getting away for two weeks, you know, um, I may physically not be able to do it. So, but I hope I get a, a chance to do that. Um, I'm a huge Cubs fan. Um, and I saw the World Series when they won in 2016. But I was sick. I mean, I was sick, deep in treatment on my couch. I pray they get back there because if they get back there, I don't care. I'm going to all seven games. That is, again, I can't, I don't want to say bucket list because they may never get back there. Yeah. Um, I spent some time in Maui a couple of years ago. One of my childhood friends, Danny Cuddy, a guy I went to kindergarten with a few years ago. Uh, he and his wife were celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary. And he said to me, I still remember I was sick. And he said, hey, man, you want to come to Hawaii and 
and we're going to redo our, our vows. And I said, yeah, I tell this to people all the time. If you ask a guy who has late stage cancer without a cure, if you ask them to do something, you better expect they're going to do it. So like, if, if you say to me, Hey man, you want to go to Maui? Like, don't say it unless you mean it because I'm showing up. And sure enough, he asked and I showed up and I fell in love with Maui. Um, I'd love to get back to Maui. Um, How'd you move there? I mean, why do you have to live in Florida? Why did you pick Florida to move to? So when I left Boston, I was at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And when we, in theory, um, exhausted the treatment that was available to us at that time, we looked for a clinical trial. And although the clinical trial was available in Boston at Dana-Farber, it was offered there uh, at Sloan Kettering in New York City, MD Anderson in Houston, here in Jacksonville at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, at that point, I started to realize that I might need to wind down my career in order to focus on battling cancer full time. And so when I looked at it all, I, I didn't, I knew people in New York City. Um, but you can't afford to live in New York. You can afford to live a lot easier in Florida than anywhere else. Yeah. And, and I had a lifelong friend here in Jacksonville um, because when you go into a clinical trial, you don't know what, I mean, you could sail through it, but you might not be able to, you know, get off the couch. And so I moved here uh, to Mayo to start a clinical trial and then eventually found the right doctor for me. And then over the course of the last three years, I've been able to build the right medical team. And so, and then, I mean, it all just came. I found the right church family. Um, I have, um, I have uh, made more friends in the last three years than I probably have in the last 25, because in the radio business, you're always moving from market to market. And so, I mean, like my buddy and his wife live two doors down. I, I called him a couple of months ago. I couldn't get off the couch. And two minutes later, he's coming through my back door because he's got a key. And he helped me get off the couch, make sure I wasn't going to pass out. Um, I mean, I've got walking distance. I've got 10 families. And so this has just become, become the place. And, um, it may not be forever. Um, but it works right now. It's becoming more and more. It's becoming like forever because, you know, once you have three years with a team of doctors, you know, that comes into play, but, but, to be very honest with you, I've already got backup plans. If, if my oncologist here says, look, I, there's nothing else we can do for you. I, I know where I'm going. I've already talked to those. I'm going to Houston. I'll go to MD Anderson, but that's what brought me to Jacksonville. But a, a lot of it also, um, the sunshine, I mean, it, and I, I don't, I don't, I joke with my parents a lot about that. You know, it snowed there in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, but there's also, Part of that emotional and mental side of the disease, when you when you wake up almost every day and there's sunshine, it has a huge effect on you. And so I, I, at the time, you know, 
living in the Northeast in 30 degrees or 30 below, uh, New York City with the expense or Houston with absolutely nobody there. I mean, if I was just making the decision based on the cancer center, I probably should have gone to Houston. Probably. But I'd be going to a place that I was very unfamiliar with, didn't really care about. And the expense factor was just too high for me. They have good barbecue. <laughs> great bar. Like, like that's people sell that to me all the time. They got great barbecue. Uh, I got a buddy who lives up in Amarillo and he said, great barbecue, uh, great steaks, like great steak places. And Tex-Mex. But, yeah. But, uh, in, if I'm being honest, Jacksonville food isn't great, but, um, that's okay. I, I have, I am, I am, I have so much support here. I wish my parents were closer, but they're not. Um, so we try to make that work with Paul's all the time and we try to see each other. Um, but I've got great support and I just have a fantastic medical team that isn't just here in Jacksonville because I learned early on that even, even my, my first oncologist, um, I still pass things by him all the time. I learned, I learned early on the importance of hire the best doctor you can and then make them your friend. Um, you know, recently I, I sent a message to one of my oncologist nurse up at Dana-Farber and said, hey, I'm thinking about this trial. I know you're running this trial in, in Boston. Have you, you know, have you, you know, what's your thoughts on it? She didn't share any information with me that she shouldn't have, but she was able to give me a perspective. And it's all because I continued that relationship because she just wasn't, you know, I didn't look at her as just as a, you know, oncologist nurse. I looked at her as we'd be developed friendships. And so outside of my medical team here, I've got doctors in four or five different places that every once in a while say, hey, here's where we're at. I don't know if you're seeing anything. What are you seeing? You know, it's been helpful. Yeah. That would be hard to just start all over somewhere else, wouldn't it? If you had to move. Yeah. I mean, it's harder. I think it's harder when you're, I think it would be harder at this point. Like there were some times I had no choice. Like I was, the doctor looked at me and thank God they were honest and said, look, this is above my pay grade. You know, I mean, and, and, and that's when you know you're in good hands, right? When a doctor looks at you and says, I'm not telling you that your life is over. I'm telling you that we've looked at this from every single angle and you'd be better off at a sarcoma center. And you should think about this, 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 or this. And then they help you to make that decision. That's what I'm talking about the kindness and the generosity of people. I, I had a social worker up at Dana-Farber who stepped in for me. Like I was deep in treatment for 15 months. You know, when you've been in multiple rounds of chemotherapy, you can't think straight cognitively. You have a hard time making decisions. It, it's hard to balance your checking account. It's, it's hard to figure out what pill you're supposed to take at what time. And this person, I still remember Larissa, she was, uh, uh, she was married, she had a, a toddler, and she was pregnant with another child. And she recognized that 
I, being a single guy, I was above my head and she needed to step in. And she was the person who finally really guided me to make the decision to walk away from my career. And listen, people don't walk away from jobs. Like just, you, you know that. I mean, people just don't, you don't walk away from something you love, something that provides you an income, that gives you insurance. You don't do it. But she realized that it was essential and she stood in the gap for me. And not only did she suggest it, she put a plan together and explained to me how from a financial standpoint, I'd be okay. Like, you'll be okay. Like, you'll adjust some things, but you'll be okay. And then not only did she just put it in front of me, she helped to implement the plan and she put it together and she was an advocate on, on, on behalf of my insurance company and disability and between doctors and finding funding. If Larissa, if she wasn't in my life, I would have never walked away from work, which means I probably wouldn't be talking with you today because the stress and everything that goes along with that, because iHeart was, you know, I'm forever grateful for iHeart Radio, iHeart Media, because um, they would have still found an office to this day. They would have found a space for me. They would have hid me in an office. They were grateful. I, I mean, they were great to me, and I'm forever grateful for that. But even though you're like, hey, you know, don't worry about being on that seven o'clock call, it's still in the back of your mind. Yeah. You're laying in bed. And those guys that you're normally on a call with are on the call and they're, they're doing all the work for you. You're still thinking about it. I wouldn't be here. But if it wasn't for Larissa, I probably would have never walked away from work because she put me into a safe space of coming to terms with it. But if she would have just stopped there and didn't help push it down the road, and listen, it was my decision. But if she didn't get me to understand it, I would have never got there. And that's one of those gifts. That's what I talk about. I, I can look back over the course of six and a half years. I met, I, met, I met a gentleman by the name of Uncle Mike. And he wasn't my uncle. I met him in Maui at that wedding. And I don't even know how he's related to my friends, Danny and Karen. Like I think it's like Karen's aunt, but Uncle Mike and Aunt Floss are their names. And Uncle Mike psychiatrist, psychologist, one of those two, again, chemo brain, but he worked with addiction. He worked with people who had addiction and he counseled and he taught, he wrote books. And over the course of eight or 10 days, uh, he had a very gentle conversation with me over multiple conversations about pain medicine, the pros and cons, what it should make me feel like, what it shouldn't, what's the positive, what's the negative. And when I came back from Maui, I was going to go have a paint pump put in because it's what I thought I needed to do. But after I processed the conversation and started thinking about what he had to say, much like my dad, right? I have to go back and analyze. I started to realize that he wasn't pushing me one way or the other. He was just helping me to understand. And what I had realized was I needed to get rid of the pain meds altogether. 
And Uncle Mike and Aunt Floss, huge gift. If they, if he wouldn't have taken that time with me, I, I would still be on opiates. And when I was in Maui with them, I was taking like 30 to 32 pills a day. So I'd have easily been in the 45 range, but that's cancer. Like, and I don't judge people. People have cancer. There's pain. You need to deal with that. But for me, I wanted to go the other way. Doesn't make me better. I still deal with pain, but my cognitive side is better. Like we, again, if I, if I continued down that path, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation because I wasn't coherent. It's just what it does to you. And so that was a true gift. And those are the things that when I say cancer's bad, but it's not all bad. Those are the things that I've come to learn and appreciate through uh, through the time. Well, I mean, do you feel like you know, we're all put on this earth and we all have our own path? I'm not going to say journey because I hate that word too, mm-hmm. but we don't know what's in store for us. None of us knows what our path is. And, and you're right. We're all going to die. All of us. Yeah. We don't know how, but we know that we're going to die. And I mean, maybe that was just your path. Yeah. If, um, if you would have told me when I was a teenager that, Hey man, you're going to get cancer at 45 and you're going to spend most of your time helping those who are battling cancer or family members who have people they love battle. You're going to, that's what you're going to do. Like, I'd be like, no, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> like, that's not, I've always enjoyed helping people. Like I, when I was a teenager, I coached baseball in radio. I would say my main skill was coaching talent. That was what I was good at. So I enjoyed, I always enjoyed looking at a group of people and realizing that we were going to go somewhere that they had no idea they were going. And I always enjoyed trying to figure out how to get them there, realizing that people, everybody's different and what works for one person doesn't work for another. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I'm, it's interesting. I work, I don't consider it work, but I spend more time every single day doing something than I used to when I was in the workforce. Um, And I don't want to say it's either more or less gratifying, but there's something about when somebody calls you, when somebody calls me and reaches out because they've been diagnosed or a family member has been diagnosed or a friend's been diagnosed or they're a patient, usually, I'm getting that call when they're at the most vulnerable stage in their life. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, back when I lived in the Northeast, I'll still remember it. Um, I had a staff of about maybe nine. And we used to do this thing once a week. I I did it for many years. I used to call it beer club. I don't even drink beer. Very rarely drink beer. But you guys up in the Northeast know how to pound beer. Like you yeah. guys know how to drink beer. And these guys, I mean, the, the radio station was in Springfield, Mass, but Massachusetts, Connecticut, border. Um, 
I mean, it's winter there seven months out of the year. So if you don't drink, you've got, you know, why live there, right? So um, we used to do beer club once a week. And I just did it, just did it because I wanted everybody just to get together and just, all right, we all, you know, we love what we do, but let's just slow down for a minute. And we don't need to talk about work. Just, and so, but it took on a life of itself. And because they were, all of these people, they were huge beer drinkers, but craft. Um, I remember that. Yeah. And so the first time they come to beer club, I've got, you know, Bud Light and Stella, and they're laughing at me because they realize I'm not a beer drinker. Like when I think, all right, the best beer you should get is Stella. Like they're like, what? This is like, so it took on a life of its own. And every week somebody else would be like, I got the beer next week. And I'd give them the money and they'd go buy. But I remember about six months into this, I'm sitting at my desk. They would come into my office and uh, we'd all sit around and, and somebody walk in with the beer and everybody get excited. Oh, I've never had that. Like they would get really excited. And I remember getting a, a Facebook message from a buddy of mine that I knew in the radio business for maybe 20 years. He wasn't really close, but the circle's tight. So you get to know people through either going to a show together or a showcase, or you see them at a convention. And it was very simple. He said in in a Facebook message, he said, Hey man, you got a second. Can I, can we talk? And I, at this point I'd been battling cancer for two and a half, three years. So I had experienced this before. So I knew the tone of the message was something cancer related. And so I said, yeah, give me a second, shoot me your cell and I'll call you. And sure enough, within seconds, he sent me the cell, which also, uh, kind of reiterated, uh, confirmed the fact that it was probably something pretty important. So I stepped out of my office, excuse myself, stepped out of the office. And said, I got to take this call. So I, I, I walked out of my office, shut the door, uh, went into one of the cubicles uh, down the hallway from my office. Everybody else was gone. So I picked the phone and said, hey, man, what's up? And I still remember the pregnant pause. Like he panicked. He didn't know what to say. And I, I, I knew he was on the line, but I didn't say anything. I just get him through the moment. And he said, hey, JT, he said, um, I need to talk to you about something. Yeah, I just listened and over talking. Because I've been through this many times for myself, with others, talking to others about what I'm dealing with, but also had been through hundreds of patients at that time. He said, um, so I, I just left my doctor's office and uh, who's diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I don't know how to tell my wife. Th- that was a moment that I'll never forget because I didn't expect it. And if that's not the most vulnerable point in your life up to that point, nothing else is. Now, it may be of tougher, like when he had to go tell his wife. And I get those calls all the time. I get them. Okay, so I diagnosed with cancer and my husband and I have decided not to tell our children. Do you have any thoughts on that? And I never tell people what to do. I I never play doctor. I never, I say, look, here's, 
here's how I, I experience this personally. This is what I've seen. This is everything I know. You have to make the tough decision. And I, I consider it, I hate to use the word honor, because nobody gets excited about getting those types of calls. But I'm glad that um, I'm glad that I'm put in the path of that because a lot of times where things get difficult is when somebody else is in the path and they don't, they haven't been through it. And so, you know, and I learned this lesson. This was a great, another gift is truly a gift. My second diagnosis, I was in Scottsdale when the cancer came back and I was sitting in a conference room with four or five doctors and brand new oncologist, uh, the radiation oncologist who did the radiation on my leg was in the room, but there were four or five doctors. And I remember sitting in a room and the doctors were doing a consult with me. And I remember I started asking a bunch of questions because I like to ask questions in order to analyze later. And I remember saying, so, okay, so tell me about this. And tell me about this. And tell me about this. And then the oncologist who I just met stopped the room. And he's like, JT, hold on a second. We have a hundred years of experience in this room with cancer, but you have cancer. So you're the expert. So you need to tell us so we can guide you. Some of the best advice I ever had, because I've watched a lot of people, when you're public with cancer, um, you get a lot of people who come to you with a lot of cures who've never had cancer. Like, but, but they always come to you with a cure and a $5,000 bill, right? So you start to learn like, oh, wait, I remember, I remember this happened early on. A guy, st guy started befriending me on Facebook Messenger. I really thought he was my friend. And about four days later, he told me he had this water that he helped, thought would help me. And so uh, I said, yeah, I said, uh, sure. So I met up with him and he pulled three gallons of water out of his trunk, walked him over to my car, put him down and then said, that'll be $80. I'm like, what? <laughs> like you start to learn that yeah. and then you start to get smart about it. And I'm not saying people who don't have cancer can't be knowledgeable. Most of my doctors have never dealt with cancer, but my point is when you're when you're seeking a patient experience, I think it's best to seek a patient's experience. Not saying a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist can't help you through that. That's not what I'm saying. But if you say, hey, unfortunately, my sister um, or my friend or family member or neighbor diagnosed with cancer and they're about ready to experience chemotherapy. Do you have any tips? Like, I'm not going to go in and say, well, don't do this. Don't do that. I'm going to say, okay, so here's what my experience with chemotherapy for me, it's fatigue. And so how I know, here's what I know about fatigue and how you can help yourself to kind of minimize fatigue. Or here's what I know about nausea or strength, 
or weight. Like these are things I know. Again, everybody's disease and everybody's path is different, but here's what I've experienced. And then on top of that, talking through this conversation with people all the time. What have you experienced? What have you experienced? The truth is, is there's a lot of common threads through the different types of cancers. And so that's really why I, I consider it a blessing because I would much rather have myself in the path of a cancer patient than somebody who's trying to get you to drink some water or, Hey, eat this broccoli and howl at the moon every night. Like, you know, I mean, I, I had a guy once tell me, look, I, I, um, I know how to cure your cancer. Um, but you have to leave all of your doctors and you have to do everything I say. And I remember at this point, it was kind of like, it was kind of like talking to a uh, telemarketer when you're messing with a telemarketer, like you're like engaging enough to where they think like, and I, I went along with this guy for a couple of hours. And I, I just realized he was just preying on somebody who was in a vulnerable state. So that's why I'm always open to being at that vulnerable state for that person. And I don't take that lightly. There, there's a responsibility with that. You know, sometimes when they're over emotional, I got to pull them. And then there's times where I've got to push them more. And there, I, a lot of times, you just got to listen. You got to listen and help navigate them because they'll sooner or later get there. There's no magic words in what I say. Like there's, like, I always tell people, and people are, normal people tell me I'm wrong when I say this, but I'm really not a good poster child for cancer. Really not. Because, and I feel this way because uh, I have a different makeup, not better, might be worse, but I mean, to be able to detach the emotional side, you almost should look at me like, eh, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> What's wrong with you? But it's not a half, the glass is half empty or full. Um, I just have the ability to compartmentalize it. And the one, the one thing I do say a lot to myself that is probably something I would be upset if somebody said it to me was, it is what it is. It is what it is. And cancer is complicated. It doesn't play by the rules. And it'll turn on you in a second. But it also will turn on you for the positive in a second. Because for as many times I've been told, hey, you got 60 days, you got 90 days, you got six months. I'm sitting here for six and a half years. And it's nothing that I've done. The one thing I've learned is, um, and I've learned this from all angles. I've understood miracles. Like for a lot of people, the only miracle in regard to cancer is a complete cure. And I push back on that. Like, don't get me wrong. I pray for a miracle every single day. And I have friends and family every single day. And if that's what the Lord wants, let's go. Okay, like, like good, I'll go back to work. I'll do whatever. But I truly experienced the true miracle of being able to live life every single day despite cancer. Like that to me is a bigger miracle than a cure. Like 
because it's not fun. So that vulnerable moment that I'm put in the path of somebody else, I think is I'm allowed that moment because I'm put in those vulnerable moments often uh, on my own. So you were 45 when you were diagnosed. If looking back on your life, would if you had known that you were going to get cancer at 45, is there any way that you would have lived differently? I, I, I think I would have liked to. Um, I think I told you at a young age, I was taught the importance of work. Um, I probably would have worked as hard, but just not as long. Like I would have slowed down a moment. I was talking to one of my buddies who we worked together early on in our career. He's a little bit older than I am and, and he's retired at this point. And I, I asked him, he's single, never had children. I said, you ever have, you know, you ever sit back and wish he's like, yeah, kind of wish I, I would have had kids. I don't know that I, I would go that far, but I probably yeah, you know, I was the guy who, um, if there was a Memorial Day weekend, I stuck around just in case something was needed at the radio station, or you know, I didn't take I didn't take the four day weekend like everybody else because I was building my career, and so probably that um, again I would have worked just as hard. But I would have probably put better a better safety net around that. Um, at the same time, I've experienced things that most people dream of. You know, I've been to the Grammys too many times to remember ACM, CMAs. You know, a lot of the artists. I mean, I'm not trying to show off here, but you know, they're all friends. These guys are have become friends, like. You know, I've, I've had experiences and, and, and listen, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really a music guy. Like I was in radio, I was more in the talent development side, but I might've slowed down and experienced some things. But when you think about it, when I, again, when I get context and I think about my dad, my dad worked hard from when he came to this country at 17 till he retired because in Ireland, you couldn't get a job. You just couldn't. That's why he came to this country because you get a job and you focus and focus and focus and you take care of your family and then you retire and then you relax. And so that was kind of my mentality. If I had known at 45, I was going to get cancer, probably would have brought that in just a little bit and tried to truly enjoy. There were some things that I really didn't even enjoy, like, you know, like I said, going to the Grammys or going to the CMAs. For me, that was work. That's part of the job. And so sometimes I had great moments that I didn't even recognize they were great moments. It was part of work. And so I would say that. Um, but I don't, you know, my buddy Keith and I were talking about it. I have a lot of great regrets because, I mean, there are regrets in my life. I don't have a lot of great regrets about that because. I've been truly like I've done more living since being diagnosed with cancer. Pro I've probably done just as much living in the last six and a half years as I did with the previous 40. 
I mean, that, it's kind of ironic to say that, but it's true. What do you think you wouldn't have if you didn't get cancer? Because you would have been busy working. Yeah, I mean, I think as you get older in a career, like, like in the later part of my career, I wasn't getting paid for what I was doing. I was getting paid for what I had experienced, right? I didn't have to do anymore. I just had to kind of guide. All right, let's do this. Let's move here. Let's go. So it, it was, I won't want to say it was winding down. But the emotional toil of being in the trenches had lifted, right? I wasn't anymore fighting for my job because I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to keep my job like anybody in the radio business because the industry had evolved, right? And not because of satellite radio, but because there were just many ways people get their audio. There's people would get their entertainment. It had been split. But um yeah, I, I had I already started that process. I already started to enjoy those types of things. Started to uh, fully uh, enjoy people, like and 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 understand their uniqueness and who they were, as opposed to, all right, how do I how do I maneuver this person so we can get bigger ratings? You know, so kind of back and forth, but. I already started to wind that down a bit. Do you feel like you're able to be present now? Yeah, I mean, we've been on this call for two hours. You tell me. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm sitting in front of a computer. Behind you it is two windows that oversee a, a park. Uh, I've seen 10 kids, three dogs, people, and you don't, you haven't seen it. Like I'm truly in this moment with you. Um, and, and not just because we're like, I, I'll be honest with you. I forgot 90 minutes ago that we were doing a pod. I still don't even know how you're doing this. Like I, I assume you're doing this on zoom, yeah. but I forgot we're doing this. You and I are just having a conversation. Yeah. And so like I'm, but but this is the same way if I, you know, before I was with you, I uh, I came through the neighborhood and saw one of my buddies and a moment presented uh, itself between him and I to discuss a couple of things that we both needed to discuss. And I was just as present in that moment as I was in this moment. So, yeah, I. Uh, that's that's a great marketing ploy. Like you always see it in times like this where there's a uh, crisis or a pandemic. Like, um, and I and I'm please don't I'm not I'm not knocking that um, because people are going through great depression and isolation and it's difficult for people. But I was built for this. Like that's the one thing cancer will teach you. Cancer will teach you how to socially distance. Like. Because there are times where I have to socially distance just to survive. Like, you'll never see me eat community food. Not because I don't like my friends cooking, but I'll eat community food. If I get to the food first, I'll eat it. But after 30 people have chosen to take food from a platter, there's no upside for me. And that's not disrespectful. You just have to be cautious because. Um, a flu could have 
a flu could stop me from having treatment, which could the progression of my, you have to think through all of that stuff, but um, it's a great marketing, you know, around Christmas, we always talk about the gift of being together and staying in the moment and being present. They're great. It looks, it looks good on a Facebook wall, but I don't think most people truly understand that. Like they don't, that is, that is, I understood that before I got cancer, but that focus um, has become more apparent. And, and not just with people who are like-minded or seasoned. Like I sometimes get more focused on a conversation with my buddy's five-year-old than I do with his dad. Like when, when he pulls out his book, um, Jackson, my, my buddy and his wife's, five-year-old, five year and he just got this book on germs about a month ago. And every time I see him, I'm like, hey, man, uh, tell me about a germ. And he runs to get his book. And he tells me about another germ. I, he's just fascinated with germs. Like, sometimes I find myself more engaged and present in that conversation than I do with his dad. I mean, it's just, that's become really important to me. I you know, there are five things that I put in my life every single day. Laughter, um, sunshine, exercise, um, a conversation with a child or an interaction with a child. Like, even if it's just seeing, like, today I talked to one of my buddy's kids, but but seeing the two brothers out with their dad throwing a ball to their, I consider that an interaction because I'm able to get inside of that moment. And sunshine. Those are the five things every single day. You said sunshine twice. <laughs> sunshine, all right, so, okay, sunshine, laughter. Oh, and a conversation with a stranger. Oh, oh okay. I like conversation that. or an interaction with a stranger. So important. And I don't. Why? I hate to use the word stranger, but somebody I don't know. Why? Um. um because no matter what I'm going through, good or bad, it makes me stop and focus on something other than myself. So today it was at a coffee shop and I went to a coffee shop today um, because I had to get away from the house because I've been locked up in the house pretty much since Friday with the exception of going out with my buddies on Saturday. I've been in the house. And I forced myself out for three or four hours this morning. And like everybody else, you're safe. I sat at a table by myself. But on my way out, uh, coffee shop wasn't that busy. It was 12, 1230. And I had a three-minute conversation with the three staff members that were there. And it wasn't deep or really intense. But it started because... But, and I, I was going to be intentional with the conversation no matter what. But when I stood up, uh, I had to catch myself because my blood pressure had dropped and I had to brace myself. And the ladies, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's blood pressure. And she's like, do you mean calling it? I'm like, I'm a cancer patient. Just got through chemotherapy. This is normal. Don't panic. Just give me a second. And then I walked away like anybody else would. And we had a brief conversation. And she shared with me that 
Uh, her mom had had breast cancer at one time, and we had a, a quick conversation about that. But I always try every single day. I, I shouldn't say I try. All five of those things every single day. It, 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 it's almost like a, a checklist. It's almost like it ensures, it ensures my perspective. Um, it ensures that my perspective remains as positive as it possibly can. Well, you're definitely one of, if not the most positive person that I've ever met, truly. Mm. And it's really nice. And, and it's also nice to hear you talk about all the kindness that you see in the world, because I feel like, you know, all you have to do is turn the news on and you don't see that. You hear all the terrible things that are going on and all the bad people that there are in the world. and and um, I don't know. I feel like we're all jaded. And that's why it's so nice to talk to kids. They're not jaded yet. They don't have baggage. You know, it's nothing's, you know, nothing's um, unkind to them. Even if they ask you a question that could, if an adult had asked it, it would seem rude or obnoxious. You know, they're they're just, they just have this natural curiosity about everything. I I remember the first time, uh, Jackson, my buddy's kid, said to me in a mixed group, he said, there were a bunch of us a couple of years back. And I used to I used to wear a hat all the time because I just could never understand being bald. And so I didn't embrace it. Like I embraced it when it's by myself, but if I'd go out in public, I'd wear a hat. And so I finally come around to it. One day I went over to one of my buddy's house. And again, there were 10 couples, 30 kids, and we were uh, getting ready to eat. And I think it was Jackson who said it, or it was one of the other kids said, uh, Uncle JT, they'll call me Uncle JT or Mr. JT. Um, what happened to your hair? <laughs> and couple of laughs, couple of laughs that, they, the people who laughed felt embarrassed, a lot of silence. And I just, I, I allowed the moment to be. And he's a three-year-old kid. He doesn't, yeah. you know. Um, There's no judgment behind it. No judgment. And, and, and listen, if you get upset about that, there's you got bigger issues. Um, but you're right. There's something about kids, like they don't understand racism. And they don't understand color and they don't understand fat or skinny or poor or rich. At some point in life, you start to understand that. And that's really sad in life. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, and I think, I think I've, I've learned it more. Like I watch news. Like I feel like I need to be informed, but I do believe that a lot of what we see on TV is almost geared to get us anxious and fearful. And to hate, maybe maybe it's not geared to get us to hate, but that's the result of it. Um, and there's just some so much purity through the eyes of a child. Like, you know, if you can talk, if, if a kid can talk to you for 20 minutes, a, a five-year-old whose attention span isn't 20 minutes normally. They can talk to you about bugs for 20 minutes. You better take that 20 minutes. 
because those are some good moments. And so, again, another gift. And I, I put that in my life every single day because it just, I think what it does is it, it allows me to have less bad moments. Like when you're filling yourself up with that kind of stuff, an occasional bad diagnosis that you get from your oncologist really doesn't seem that bad. I mean, get me wrong. I mean, again, I'm not diminishing and for other cancer patients, it's different. But for me, it's those little things that I put in my life that help me to get through the moments and allow myself to have the bad moments. I mean, uh, Sunday, Monday, I couldn't function. It's good. I mean, I, I, Monday I got out of bed. I, I had radiation treatment. Like I had treatment. So I go to the hospital. But so I came back from the hospital. I was in bed. I think I was in bed till seven o'clock and I'm not talking on the couch. I mean, in bed. So if I'm in bed, I'm pretty tanked on Tuesday. I was in bed till 5 PM. And when I got out of bed, I considered that a win. Like that was a win. And today's Thursday, right? Yeah. Thursday. Okay. So yesterday, uh, I was able to get out of bed at about seven or eight, but spent most of the day on the couch. And so I, I consider those wins. Like, like, I don't know. It just changes the perspective. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I mean, I remember Monday being not feeling good and being in bed, but that's in the past. Like I, I've released that that's gone. And so I know now from here on out through, I'll get treatment two weeks from today. I should be okay. I should start getting every single day and more energy. And so the bad part of it, I put in the back. Now I'll prepare for that next because of what I now know, what this chemotherapy did to me. Like I know that this next round will be a little bit worse. It might be an extra day because chemotherapy for me is a cumulative, right? The more rounds you have, the longer the side effects or the deeper they get. But I'm past that. Like, and, and a lot of that is because of those five things I do every single day because it just doesn't highlight the negative. It highlights the positive. Well, that's interesting that you can see things that way. I'm sure that there are people that are negative. You know, why did this happen to me? Why do I have to deal with this? Maybe they don't have a support network. And listen, rightfully so. Like nobody ever, you know, no, nobody ever looks at a cancer diagnosis and I mean, like rightfully so. Like I tell patients all the time, look, this is your diagnosis. You get to choose how you're going to deal with it. I'll help you however you want to be helped. But at the end of the day, you've got to choose how you're going to deal with it. I'm going to try to help you head some of this stuff off in the beginning, but it's your choice. You get to choose. And you know, I, I've seen a cancer diagnosis uh, 
put strong, grown men and women in a fetal position. And they haven't been able to get through it. And I'm not, I don't judge them. Like, yeah. you know, we're all made differently. But listen, if it doesn't have an initial impact on you or, or an impact at some point, you're not human. Like, it, it's tough. I mean, it's just, you know, a lot of times people will say, my, you know, my success, any point of success was because I had failure at a previous time in life. And I just learned how to get through that failure. And yeah, I mean, I, the person I am today with cancer is a lot different from the person I was when I was newly diagnosed with cancer. And I'm not like, but six and a half years of battling treatment and bad news it'll change you. Like, and it might change you for the negative. You might become uh, pessimistic or angry. I just, I guess I learned early on when the cancer come back the second time, I realized that there's a good chance that cancer is going to be part of my life, the rest of my life. And I used to say this early on. I used to say, to people, well, there's better chance cancer is going to take my life than old age. And I think that was a way of allowing myself to feel that way. I don't say that anymore. I've moved to, I might die with cancer, but not because of it. Right. I think there's one more step in that. And I think, but I think it's a step. It's, I'm going to be pure. I'm not there yet. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not there yet. Um, partly because I know that that may not be God's will. Like it may not be, but I don't think moving to that step would change any of who I am or have to change. I just feel like, um, I understand how complex this is. I mean, it would be easier for me to tell you where I haven't had disease than where I've had it. So, um, and that doesn't give me a graceful out if tomorrow, you know, I passed. Because the the one, the here's another gift. When you get cancer at 45, at least me, you get cancer at 45. For me, I've said everything I need to say. I have. Every I have I have not left an I love you out. Haven't. Um for and, and I wasn't a big person who had to make amends to a lot of people, but I had to I had to let not amends like I wronged somebody, but there are some people I needed to tell how I felt about it. I've done all that. Like, so if this is the last conversation I have, not a problem for me, maybe for those who I love, right? Like maybe my mom would have wanted to have one more or my, like, I, I, I get it. But uh, everything that I've needed to say, uh, and I, like, I'll, I'd probably be sad, like, oh man, I should have gone much, or I wish I'd have gone to Machu Picchu or gone to Ireland, but you know, I don't think in life we get to choose all of that. Like, 
it's okay. Um, but every conversation I've never, since I was diagnosed with cancer, I haven't left a, and I love you unsaid. Just haven't. Well, I, you know, I think a life well lived is never really done. I mean, there's always going to be stuff you want to do, whether you die at 40 or 90. Yeah. Now, at least yeah, that's because- how I hope I feel if I make it to 90, that there's still things that interest me that I want to do. Yeah. I, and I think it becomes more like the, the further I get along in this disease, the more I want to do. But it's not necessarily, I go to Paris. It's, man, I want to, I want to get on that. I want to get in the boat with my buddy. I want to get, I want to, I want to get in the boat with my nephew and throw a, a fishing pole into the water. You know, I want to see, I want to see my niece graduate from high school. You know, I want to see firsthand what it's like to watch my buddy be successful. You know what I mean? It's those for me, because again, being the son of an immigrant and we grew up poor, but we didn't know it. And we weren't poor. Like the, the picture of poor is so different. I mean, I've been to Haiti a couple of times and I've been in, you know, into the slums of Brazil. Like I, I go on missions trip trips often. They, the poor I grew up with and the poor that's in Haiti are two different animals, but we grew up poor. Um, for me, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with uh, another car or a bigger house or like, I don't swear a lot, but the things that they used to tell us that were important, like the number in the bank account, yeah, I tell this to radio guys all the time, you know, always being number one, you know, being considered the best. It's all bullshit. It really is. I mean, you have to have enough to live and that's the great balancing act. The great balancing act in life is how much do you focus on stuff versus experience? Yeah. Great ba- I think you're a failure. If at the end of life, you haven't used your resources to help others. I, I think you're a great failure. The, the, the thing is, how do, you, how do you balance the two? So for me, it's not, about, it's not about going to Ireland and eating at the finest restaurants. It's standing with my dad in a, in a lot that has buildings that are now the center of town and him telling me that's where he went to school and living that moment with him. Or it's uh, being there with my mom and her telling me stories about her grandmother or instead getting in a kayak with my nephew and just experiencing something that two people have never experienced together. If I leave, if I leave a bunch of money, if I leave a bunch of money, um, uh, if I leave, if I leave a bunch of money behind me, and didn't live those experiences, for me, I'm a failure. Like that. But we're conditioned at a young age. You know, you got 
high school and then college and then career and then yeah. 401k and then blah, blah, blah. And second house and five cars and, and then leave everything to this one person. Huh? And travel when you retire. Yeah. But, yeah. Assuming you're going to be healthy enough to do that. Correct. And what about yes. the parents that tell their kids, oh, you know, you want to be a musician, you can't do that. You have to go into something more practical where you're going to make money or, you know, you need something to fall back on. There's, I know so many people, and I'm sure you do too, that never really pursued their dreams because they were told that you have to do something safe. Yeah. So I followed my dream. All I ever wanted to do was be on the radio and work in the radio business. Um, a lot of my friends, I'm 51. So a lot of my buddies went to high school and then either right into the workforce, they became police officers or firemen or electricians, or they went to college and then became an accountant. And they, you know, they're happy with what they did. Um, I, I fell in love and again, another gift. My dad came to this country when he was 17 or 18, got a job when he was 20, and stayed in that job for 30 years, and then retired, retired young. My dad worked for people's gas. Like, he put gas lines in. And I never could understand, like, I never, to me, that never appealed. Like, a 401k, a pension, like, that when you're 17 or 18, at least for me, I'm not thinking about that. My parents thought about it all the time. Like my mom wanted me to go work for the post office, right? <laughs> a safe job. Because of the pension. And I remember saying, I want to go be on the radio. And I still remember this conversation. This is one of those early conversations I had with my dad that I didn't understand when we first had it. But I understood it several years later. I was 17 or 18 and gotten my first radio position out of town. We lived in Chicago in the city. And I got the opportunity to go work at a radio station down in Vero Beach, Florida, about three hours south of where I'm at now. I'm up in like St. Augustine. And I remember um, we rented a Hertz truck. Yeah. So uh, we're driving around town in this Hertz truck and he's making me drive it just because, again, he's not thinking... I'm capable of driving this because I'm 17 or 18. I'd got my license just a year, year and a half before. And I remember I was sitting in the passenger seat. He was telling me about the mirrors and how I have to be careful of clearance. And I'm like, I'm not really listening to him. But I remember saying to him, dad, I said, how do you feel about me moving to Florida and taking this job? I remember what he said to me. He's like, son, if you want to dig ditches, you dig ditches. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I, I asked you a specific question about me moving to Florida. So a number of years later, after I'd been in the radio business, six, seven, eight years, probably three stops, because I got fired in Vero Beach because I was stupid and young. I moved around. Six or seven years later, I was in Chicago, staying at my parents' house and. One afternoon, he said, hey, you want to take a ride? Sure. So I jumped in his car, and we're driving around. And as we were just going out for a piece of pot, just him and I, my dad had this thing where after every night after we'd have, he'd have dinner, he'd go for a walk in the neighborhood and have a cup of coffee at a local restaurant. And so 
I think he just, that was his way of saying, let's get some time together. Uh, so we're driving around and, and as we're driving to this restaurant, which was probably only a mile away, but he kept driving in circles. Like it took 10 miles to get to the restaurant. I started to realize that he started pointing out. He'd be like, hey, you see that right there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I put the gas in there about 12 years ago. Oh. And he did that about seven or eight times. And then I realized that he was very passionate about what he did. He enjoyed, like, that's what, and, and so then I took that back to seven years later when he said, hey, you want to dig ditches, you dig ditches. That was his way of saying to me, man, follow your passion. Because to my, da- to my dad, it wasn't, he used the phrase dig ditches, but for a guy who had 12 brothers and sisters who they couldn't afford to eat, his passion was what put food on the table for his family. And that's what he was telling me, go do your passion. And so I, you know, for me, that's all I've ever done. I, there are times where, you know, I have those honest conversations a lot. Like, I'll say, I, I've said it to my nephew before. I've said, you know, all young kids go through, I want to be a YouTube star, or I want to be a skateboarder, or this or that. And I explain to them, because like the 30-year career that I have, came with a lot of sacrifice. I mean, I just didn't all of a sudden get to run a radio station in Denver, Colorado. It took 15 stops before I got to Colorado. And it took being fired four times and bad times. So I always try to talk to somebody about who wants to be a musician or an on-air talent or creative. I say, look, okay, you do whatever you want put your mind to it. You can do it. Now, you know, you might not be able to ride a horse in the Kentucky Derby if you're six foot four and 300 pounds. Like that may be out of his wheelhouse. <laughs> but generally, I think as long as you line up your talents with the talent that the career you want to be in is there, you marry, you marry the hard work to it and a methodical approach. I remember the first time Taylor Swift sat in my office, was 12 or 13, the guitar was bigger than she was. It was Taylor, skinny, big guitar and hair out every year. I remember listening to her sing. I remember thinking, she's not a great singer. These songs are pretty impactful. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know she was going to be a superstar. I knew there was a lot of talent. knew there was a lot of talent. You know how many people told her no, 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 no? Far more than who have told her yes, 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 yes. That was part of my upbringing too. I remember, I remember getting fired one day in Chicago uh, for no reason whatsoever. And I remember thinking, the guy who just fired me is in 10 years is going to be working at a restaurant and I'll be running a major market radio station. And that wasn't being... I wasn't being disrespectful, but that was just my mentality. Now, there were times when I got fired and I should have got fired. I was stupid and I made a bad decision, but I always think there's balance. I think people, listen, follow safe or follow a passion. There's no question whatsoever. Follow the passion. I know a coach who always says that people don't fail, they quit. Correct. 
Safety, listen, I mean, I have to balance that all the time. I mean, in cancer care, it's risk versus reward. We could be having a different conversation today, right? I could have told you we just did radiation. It didn't work. Now, guess what? We can't radiate near the heart. Now, we're not 100% sure that it worked 100%, but it's worked enough to where we're like, yeah, we probably made the right decision. But you're always managing risk and reward. But that's all I ever did was manage risk versus reward. And I think think a lot of times um, when it comes, look, nobody wants to see their child fail. Sometimes you got to let them fail. And again, I'm not a parent. So I don't, I don't, you know, for me to say that there's probably not a lot of validity in that. I I don't know what it's like to look at your child um, and see them hurting and not intervene. Like I, I don't, I don't know what that's like. So, but if you have the opportunity to follow, like I always tell people, uh, if you find your true passion, sooner or later, the money will come around. It'll happen. And, and you, you, you know, I mean, uh, you want to be like, you want to be a teacher. You're not getting into teaching for money. Like you're getting into teaching because you like to nurture, you like to help or this or that. Now you can make a lot of money teaching, but that that's not the focus. So, um, cause I do, I get a lot of that. I mean, I was on the phone yesterday, like I said, uh, with some friends, 13 year old who wants to be a songwriter. We spent two and a half hours writing music. He's 13. And we, I had this, it was scheduled for an hour call. We ended up two and a half hours. And maybe the last hour was him just asking me questions about, is it okay to put my music out there? Should I not put it out there? How do I put it out there? Like, how do I get better at this? How do I get better at that? And I scheduled the call for an hour only because I thought I could only last an hour because I wasn't like, you just don't know. But I was feeling better. And like I said, I had some friends stop over. So I interrupted part of the call. But what was important wasn't at that point, my comfort or what I had going on, it was having a moment with Davis and just saying to him, look, you know, and and also knowing, and also knowing that this may just be a phase. Like I, I texted with his parents today. I'm like, look, this may only ever be a hobby for him. And that's okay. It's okay. But don't, don't stop him. Like I, I don't, don't stop that. Like, let him pursue it until he's done pursuing it. My nephew, he, he said he wanted to be a YouTube star. I have honest conversations with him because I work in that space. I work in, in media. Like, you can't post a video once every six weeks and it, it you know expect to have 60 million subscribers. It doesn't work that way. But you give grace, like, because it can be a phase. Um, but I'm a big believer in follow your passions. One hundred percent money will take care of itself. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think life's too short to be miserable. Yeah, and unfortunately, people like we all go through miserable times. This part of life. That's part of the whole experience of life. You have to go through miserable times, but people stay in miserable times way too long. They do, like. You know, yeah. well, I'm a divorce lawyer. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, and not only that, uh, there are there are some people I'll run into that they sabotage 
good times. Like they want to put themselves into them. Like it's almost like they feed off of it. And I think it's sometimes because people don't feel like they're being noticed. And a lot of it has to do with the social media culture we're in. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I don't understand that whole, I have to do something because my friends are doing it. Like, I don't like, you know, people who spend way out of their means because the person next door has a BMW. Like, maybe I just grew up in a different generation and I learned through making mistakes. But I think, unfortunately, the truth is a lot of people are lonely. Yeah. They're, li- they're living in households with people, like husbands and wives and children and around their, their moms and dads and cousins, and they're truly lonely. You feel alone. I agree. I think there's a lot of people, too, that are constantly getting the message that you're not good, em- good enough. I mean, look at advertising. We're constantly being told you're not good enough, you're, you need this so you can be better, so that you can look better, so you can smell better, you know, so people will like you, so that you can have security at your job. I mean, we're always being told how inadequate we are and you just need to buy this stuff and you will be adequate. So, you know, I think, I think we can underestimate how that affects us being surrounded by that constantly on television and now Facebook and Instagram and everywhere. Yeah. The, um, that's why I, I try my best when, and I've been, my, my whole, uh, from day one, from the minute I got cancer and this again, another true gift. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I spent the first two days trying to figure out somebody I knew had cancer. So I could pick up the phone and call them and say, all right, what am I about ready to experience? Didn't know one. And that was a great gift to me because what it made me do was to learn about my disease and then cancer in general. And as a result of that, I started to use Facebook and Hey, you know, I've been diagnosed with this cancer. Anybody ever. And I've been posting about my disease for six and a half years and not just ringing a bell telling everybody I'm done with treatment. But if you scroll through my Facebook, there are some cringe worthy moments, like ones that I even look at. I'm like, wow, that's, but I did it because I learned early on that at some point, the mission for me became, I don't want somebody to have the experience I had when I was diagnosed. I want everybody to have the ability to find some type of information of how do you battle the disease? Not from a medical standpoint, because I'm not a doctor, but talking about the insecurity, talking about how do you tell your parents you have a terminal disease? How do you get through opiate withdrawal? I mean, I spent 18 months coming off opiates. I documented every single moment. Like, listen, those 18 months of coming off the opiates, 
it was harder doing that than it was battling cancer those 18 months, which has propelled me into working with those who have addiction to oxycodone and heroin and Percocet and whatever. Like yeah. addiction's addiction. I've and heard so- that's really hellish recovery with even beyond the initial withdrawal. Yeah, I I um I have some thoughts on that. I I never go political or uh, conspiracy. I mean, I believe there's a lot of things out there that are happening, but that, that I, that's not my platform. Um, you know, there. I used to think before, and I didn't become addicted to the opiates, but I became dependent. Like your body becomes. It doesn't matter if you're addicted or not. I, I you know, there's a difference. Addiction is when you can't stop. Uh, my body became dependent and I had to just undo what I had done. And so opiates work two different ways. You know, opiates are, are used for short term, but in a cancer diagnosis, they're usually given to you and then you take them to the end of life. It's just that my end of life wasn't as quickly as most people with my disease. And so after about two, two and a half years of being on these opiates, you continue to get more and more and more because the pain comes through. Your body becomes more and more dependent. But I can tell you, uh, coming off the opiates was by far in that time period tougher than battling cancer. I mean, just the the physical, the mental anguish, the anxiety, the insomnia, the it, 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 it's a, it's a mess, but being able to, uh, document everything that I've done through this whole thing was my whole goal was to just kind of leave, um, leave the information out there because in 30 years, uh, if somebody, if there isn't a cure for the cancer I have, I want somebody to be able to look at something and say, Oh, okay. But this is 30 years ago, but this may work for me. This may that, and that's why I migrated to my podcast because <clears throat> I believe time shifted audio is going to be more relevant than Facebook will be in thirty years. Right? I mean, we go through these cycles. I mean, you know, Facebook is really strong, and that's where my my audience is now. But ten years ago, we all thought MySpace was going to be our audience for the True. It just it's cyclical, and so that was the true gift. The true gift was not knowing anybody who had ever cancer had cancer caused me to do this, which caused me to do this and caused me to do this. Well, I love your podcast. And for people who are listening, it's cancer and chill, A-N-D, not ampersand. And your website is cancerandchill.com. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. When podcasting started, yeah, I was curious like everybody else. Still, it's still in its infancy stages. Discovery of podcasts is kind of hard, as we both know. But I would listen. I would search out a podcast about cancer. And it was usually, it was either two doctors talking about treatment that was way over my head. Or I didn't want to hear that. Like, I want somebody to tell me, how do I get through the next three days knowing that I have scans on Friday and I'm in a panic state. Somebody help me with that. Or it was a cancer patient who had battled it successfully. Now, you know, or a cancer patient who all of a sudden 
stopped doing their podcast. And then I would learn that they passed from their disease. Mm. So I always thought, man, it'd be great if somebody did a podcast, a cancer patient who's going through this, who could help me try to understand what I'm going to go through. I think it's great. Even if you don't have cancer and you just want to understand what the experience is like, I think you, you share a lot of that. Yeah, I try to because every person that you'll come in contact with during the next week, at some point, will deal with cancer on some level. And so, again, when we go back to that misconception of you have cancer, you're going to die, get it out. I don't know what to say to them. Um, it can be helpful. But again, everybody's disease or diagnosis is different. But it's very similar. It's probably like um, there's a lot of lawyers in this world and there's a lot of divorce lawyers. But in the scheme of things, it's the, the community's more shrunken than you would think it is, right? Like it's like, and so cancer is that way. Like uh, for most people, when you're diagnosed with cancer, there's surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, clinical trial, or some type of a treatment that is non-treatment based. There's five. It used to be chemo radiation and then it chemo radiation surgery. You know what I mean? So yeah. it gets tightened no matter what cancer you're dealing with. Um, and so just being able to talk about it for me, uh, just being able to bring people along. I don't, I don't ever, you know, I, I, my goal isn't to talk about, you know, sometimes I, I'll, I'll listen to a podcast that I just recorded and I'm like, I, I didn't even talk about what's going on with me. I, you know what I mean? I've just, but that's okay. It's, it's not necessarily about me. It's about my experience and how do I help you? How, how do I help it be about you? Well, I think that with anything, any topic, it's, I think the ones that are more interesting is, are the ones where they talk about some of the technical stuff, but it has to have a human flair. We're all human beings, right? We don't want to just hear some robot reading off you know, technical material, we want to hear about their personal experience. We want to know that we have something in common with the person who's speaking. Right. And I think that's true, even if you don't have cancer. I mean, you talk about your parents, you know, you, you tell, told a story the other day, I think it was on one of your more recent episodes, where you wanted a pair of sneakers and you couldn't have them and because they were like $20 more than, you know, your parents wanted to pay. And you're, you talked about a lesson that your dad gave you what, like you have today. So I feel like there's a lot of wisdom there with your dad. But he said, he said something to the effect of, if you want it, you'll find a way. And it's really, I think, the personal stories like that, that make any podcast interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, another, a true gift when I was 12. I mean, he taught me, uh, he taught me that if you want something, he's like, any problem can be fixed. You just got to take control of it. And that's why when I was diagnosed, I didn't go into a fetal position. I was like, okay, we got to figure this thing out. And um, I mean, like I said, there were times where I, for a couple of hours, I mean, 
I'm not superhuman. I'm just like everybody else. But I didn't go into that initial, oh my gosh, like, no, I knew it was serious. But, and it goes back to that time where he was like, you want something in life, you go get it, kid. And you like, but, but, but think about that. Think, think about that for a second. My dad, who grew up in Ireland, who had 12 brothers and sisters who started working on the farm when he was six or seven or eight, who came to this country all by himself to live with a sister and a brother, had to navigate uh, a language barrier because of meaning. Like, you know, it's similar language, but he had to navigate a whole different world. Uh, he had to find a job, incorporate himself into a community. He became a husband and a father. And now all of a sudden, he's a dad. And his kid wants a pair of shoes that he can't afford. He can't afford. It wasn't like there was no option. I guess, I guess he probably could have found the money. But even the initial money that he was allotting me for the shoes, he didn't have it. He'd rather put it in the bank just in case. Like that's how he was, how he was brought up. But, and it wasn't like he set out to teach me a lesson, but he allowed the lesson to be put in front of me. That's the gift. That was the gift. The gift, the, the gift that I experienced at 45 was because of something that happened when I was 12. Yeah. It was just that constant, you know, constant nurturing and upbringing. Well, I asked you for two hours and you've given me three. Seems like it's only been an hour though, to be honest with you. It's oh, gone fast. It was good. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.